Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder... The wheels of justice are considered a slow one, but when done correctly, a case can reach a decision and a killer can be placed behind bars. On December 3rd, 1997, a man killed four people, and after decades passed and shady dealings happened, he was finally placed behind bars for a crime that, if you believe him, he did not commit. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On December 3rd, 1997, Diane Patiso, a young state prosecutor, went to the Erie Manufacturing Plant in Polk County to pick up her brother, Frank Doso, and her husband, George Patiso Jr., from work and never walked back out of that building. About an hour later, at their home in Winter Haven, the Dosos started to get worried when their son was uncharacteristically late for his twin's 11th birthday. Realizing that both Frank and his sister should have already made it home, and after a number of unanswered calls, they drove to Bartow to see what was going on. When they walked into the plant, they saw their 27-year-old daughter's body lying inside of the doorway. As they pressed on, they found 35-year-old Frank inside of his office, along with his 26-year-old brother-in-law and 69-year-old partner in the company, George Gonzalez. All had been shot execution style in the head. The police were immediately called to the gruesome scene. Now, from the beginning, police had a pretty good idea of who was responsible for the murders. Former Ecuadorian businessman and former partner in the company, Nelson Ivan Serrano. Phil Doso, father of Frank and Diane, was a partner in the company along with Nelson and George Consalves, and from the beginning voiced his suspicions about Nelson to the police. 
According to statements taken, Nelson was the former partner and CEO of the company, but had been in a bitter dispute with the others over the removal of $1 million from his partners without his knowledge. As the story goes, both Phil Doso and George Consalves accused Nelson of both graft and theft. But investigators and the FBI dismissed these accusations for one reason or another. However, when Nelson left the company, that's when he noticed the large sum of money missing from the corporate bank account that only Phil and George had access to. Disagreements about the distribution of assets and false books caused a serious rift between the men. And in the summer before the murders, Nelson was asked by the corporate counsel to open up a separate account with $200,000 in it to keep it away from Phil and George. Nelson instituted a civil suit against his partners, and he was ousted just five months before the murders, and his son, who worked for the company, was fired shortly thereafter. Basically, it was a story of bad business dealings and really bad blood. According to all the Doso family and most of the employees at the company, there was no doubt that Nelson was the man responsible for the murders. In fact, another Erie employee claimed that, in the weeks before the murder, a plant employee came to work with a gun threatening to kill George. Now, while both father and son had motive for the murders, Francisco Serrano provided an alibi for the night of the murder. But Nelson claimed he was in his motel room in Atlanta all evening with a migraine, meaning no one saw nor heard from him for the entire night. But with no physical evidence, all the police had was the testimony and statement from a grieving family. Nothing concrete that could allow for an arrest in the worst mass murder in Polk County history. So... The case went stagnant. Then, three years later, police found a parking garage receipt that belonged to the Orlando International Airport on the day of the murder with Nelson's fingerprints on it, meaning he landed in nearby Orlando just two hours before the murder. While this seemed initially like a slam dunk in unraveling his alibi, the state's fingerprints expert said that the print was suspicious because of how it was found, how pristine it was, and which hand the print came from. But this was enough to convince police to take a look at his alibi with a little bit more gusto. According to the timeline, Nelson was captured on an Atlanta La Quinta Hotel surveillance tape around 12.21 p.m., leaving out of the lobby. At 1.36 p.m., Nelson, using his son's name, boarded Delta Flight 1807, bound for Orlando, and touched down at 3.05. The parking ticket came at 3.49 p.m., and between 5.50 and 6.15, a witness named John Purvis, who worked at a nearby company, noticed a man dressed in a suit standing outside of Erie Manufacturing. At 7.28 p.m., a passenger named John White, an alleged alias for Nelson Serrano, checked into the Tampa International Airport just six minutes before Phil Doso made his call to 911 with the discovery of his children and partner. At 9.49 p.m., the flight from Tampa arrived in Atlanta, and at 10.17 p.m., Nelson can be seen coming back into the hotel. With that, charges were brought up against Nelson Serrano in March of 2001. Nelson, who was back in Ecuador. It would take until 2002 to finally get Nelson back on U.S. soil, and even longer to finally get him into a trial. While the prosecution set out to prove to the 12-person jury that Nelson took the flight back to Florida to enact his revenge, 
using his nephew to secure a rental car under an alias, the defense sought to prove that the prosecution wasn't necessarily handling the case within the parameters of the law. During the trial, Nelson's lawyers fought for a mistrial on the grounds that he had been illegally deported back to the United States. According to their claims, Nelson, an Ecuadorian citizen by birth and naturalized American, was kidnapped in Ecuador by a Florida-hired off-duty police officer. And then, according to the Ecuadorian government and the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, illegally deported back to Florida for his trial. They claimed he was beaten and transported in a dog kennel. The motion was denied, as was the one to move the trial due to Diane's work as a prosecutor in Polk County, and the case proceeded. The jury pronounced him guilty and sentenced him to death on June 26, 2007. The family, who was threatened with jail time if they made a sound, wept as the verdict was read. For almost a decade, the court denied appeal after appeal. Then, in a court hearing in September of 2013, prosecutors admitted to withholding testimony from the only eyewitness at the murder scene from the defense. According to the witness John Purvis, he witnessed an Asian young man between the ages of 25 to 30 standing outside the entrance to Erie and a young Latin man looking at the glass at or around the time that the murder was estimated. He also claimed that a Lincoln or Cadillac was parked outside when all of this was happening. It was unclear in my research if this changed anything about Nelson's case. But 10 years after he was sentenced, Nelson Serrano, like the others on death row, was entitled to a new sentencing after execution was deemed unconstitutional. No hearing date, to my knowledge, has been set up. Nelson Serrano and his son maintain his innocence. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on December 4th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.